Good morning, everybody. Uh, yes, I am still not Jacob Dolezal. Um, I promise you I'll get the arrangement and the order right at some point. So uh, I am excited to take the message last week to the next step as we continue on in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be starting at verse 11 and we'll go to the end of the chapter today. But uh, it's really important that we do two things. We understand the basis, the context, the, the kind of emphasis that was made last week, which is who we are or who the chosen of God are, who those uh, uh, that are predestined are, what those are about, what that actually is for, and then we're going to talk about unity, and we're going to have to define unity, okay? So, and there's a really important definition of unity that I want you to take away today. So we're going to start at Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 4, and here is again what we remember from last week. For he, who is he here? Church, this is God, chose us, and that's the important question, who is us? We know because of decisions that we've made, we know that because of putting our trust in Jesus, that this does continue and include us, but the us in view here were the saints, the, 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 the people who had put their faith in Jesus in Ephesus at the time, for God chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. The two things we talked about last week are who the us are and then what were we chosen for. Notice that we were chosen to be holy and blameless. We were made uh, in, in this decision that we make, we are made or conformed to a place in which we look like the God who redeemed us. We are supposed to reflect him in all things, okay? So, but who is us matters. So we, we remember, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And then it goes on in verse 5 and says, in love, and that's the quality of the God that we serve, Adam prayed uh, in, in exiting worship, he prayed that we would be able to see God clearly. Well, we're seeing God clearly every time we recognize the thing that motivates God to do anything, and that is love, right? So in love, he, God, predestined us, that's the same us from the previous verse, for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. And the stress last week was we were not predestined to be servants. We were not predestined to be uh, a, a giant colossal mess that God just has pity on constantly. We were actually predestined to become part of his family, sons and daughters of the king. So in love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And later on, we'll see it's his good pleasure and his goodwill. So we go on to the, the next verse here, and this is where we understand who the us is. And this is what I want you to remember from last week. And you also were included in Christ when? I had no less than 10 people last week come up to me and say the words, for the first time in my Christian life, I know that I'm a part of the us. I know that I'm a part of God's chosen people. I have always wondered, I've always heard people telling me that God picks and chooses and all this other stuff. I never understood it, and now I understand that I'm a part of it. But what makes us the us? What made the people in Ephesus the us? You also were included in Christ when you 
heard the message of truth, that is the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. If you want to know if you're chosen, if you want to know if you're predestined, here is the answer. Did you hear the gospel? Did you put your trust in Jesus, believe in him, and were you sealed with the Holy Spirit? If the answer is yes, you are in, and that is awesome, right? It is awesome. You don't have to question. You don't have to worry. You don't have to listen to any, I I know this bold statement here, you don't have to listen to any other preacher. They're wrong. You are in if you heard, believed, and are sealed. Amen? Very, very important. So last week, we understood that. We understood exactly who we are, the us, those who hear, those who believe, and those who are sealed. We move on from this, and we get ourselves in to chapters 2. Well, I think there's a missing... Oh, yes, yes, I remember what I'm doing. It's okay. Yeah, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. This is what we talked about last week. And followed its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, what is the quality of our God? Love and great love in this. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And we talked about the context of what that means. So here is where we were last week. Those who hear, those who believe, and those who are sealed are the us. Those are the chosen. Those are the predestined. We are chosen to be holy and blameless. We are predestined to be a family. And that right there makes us jump for joy. It's exciting. Now, inside of that, it is a a metaphor in the Bible that that is communicated to us that we were once dead and now we are what? We're alive. We were once dead and now we are alive. So anytime you read in the Bible, anytime you uh, go through this passages which talk about the deadness of man and the need for new life, please understand something extremely important. Dead is not absolutely, utterly, no way, shape, or form dead, Okay? It's fascinating that people believe this, but if it was dead, meaning you couldn't do good or couldn't do anything, then you could also not make bad choices. How many people know dead people don't make choices? They're, they're dead, right? So, but there's this idea in certain groups of the church that say, if you're dead, it means that you can only make bad decisions and you can never accept Jesus, and Jesus has to make it so you choose him. This is nonsense. This is not true according to the Bible. So it's important to realize we were once dead and now we are alive. Thank you very much. So we go on to the next series of verses and we get to where we are today, which is we're going to talk about being the us. We're going to talk about being the chosen, being the predestined, and we're going to talk about what it means to live this life in unity. And this is where it gets sticky. So here's what I want you to write down. Before we jump into that verse, I want you to write this down. The definition of unity. This is my definition of unity. So uh, please feel free to uh, take it or leave it, but I'm going to prove to you why it's so important. The definition of unity that you need to understand is that unity is not agreeing together about God. That's what unity is not. 
agreeing together about God. You want to know why? I've never met anybody who agrees together about God. We're literally the Protestant church, the protesters of the church, right? That's what we do. And guess how many denominations there are among protesters? An unbelievably infinite amount, which is stupid, and I know that it breaks the heart of God. It grieves him constantly because what we do is we say unity means you agree with us and what we think and what we say, and then you can be in. That's not unity. That's just being a part of a group, okay? That's, that's subscribing to, to some idea. So unity is not agreeing together about God. Unity is agreeing with God together. Now, this is really fun. Agreeing with God together. That's the definition of unity. You're going to look at this and you're going to say, that sounds like a distinction without a difference, Nathan. What's the point? I'm going to agree with uh, us about God or I'm going to agree with God together. Either way, we can't seem to get along. The distinction is that agreeing with God together opens it up, because we're human, to actually be wrong about the things that we think about God. How many of you, by a show of hands, know exactly everything there is to know about God? Nope. How many of you feel that you once knew something or thought you knew something, but the older you get, it has changed. You have a new understanding of who God is. You know what's fun? Even when you had that old understanding, you were still united in the body of Christ. See, agreeing with God together allows for this important reality, and that is, I'm not going to get it all right all the time. But what my pursuit is, is what? To agree with God. My pursuit is what does God say? What is his truth? What does he want? And if I can maintain that humility, it will go well with me when it comes to discussions and conversations and even debates and arguments with people. It will not break fellowship. It won't kill something, right? How many of you have ever found somebody you've disagreed with and all of a sudden there's no more relationship? For the rest of you, you haven't argued loud enough. Anyway, right? So, but it, is, it happens all the time where we disagree and we break fellowship. We are not being unified because what we actually believe is if you agree with me, we can be together. But if we will say, we'll agree with you, God, and that will be changed and shaped and formed and matured over time, I'm going to do that. We will remain in unity. This will give opportunity for you, if you are just now entering your journey of faith, to grow, to grow and to, and to see things that you've never seen before. It'll also give those who have walked with Jesus for a hundred years the ability to humble themselves and go, huh, maybe I didn't get that right. It's okay. We're agreeing with God together. That's what our aim is. So, We're going to jump into verse 11, and we're going to start talking about, based on the context, what unity looks like in this context, and then how it's going to apply to us. So, in verse 11, he says, Therefore, remember that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Now, we're going to move on to something here in a second, but it's really important that we recognize the therefore in light of all the things that I've told you, 
that you are chosen because you heard, you believed, and you were sealed in light of all that, and that you are Gentiles. You formerly, who were Gentiles by birth, were called something. You were called the uncircumcised. And you were called this by the so-called, notice what Paul says here, the so-called circumcision. Look at this, very important. Next slide. The Greek word used here, which I cannot pronounce, but the Greek word used here portrays circumcision as a human right, okay? Now, this is interesting. In the Septuagint, though, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word is actually used to refer to idols, which is precisely what the Jews had made it, okay? It was this idol. It was this thing that said, we belong because we've done this thing that was made by human flesh, by human hands, right? It was, it was created this way. And so we, we have to remember that whatever this circumcision is, it was intended to be this. By faith, we work. And what happened was everybody did an act and they thought that was what pleased God. And so Paul, who is a Jew, and a very darn good one at that, right? Paul, who is a Jew, is actually kind of digging at his own people and maybe even digging at himself a little bit. We were talking on Tuesday night about the fact that Paul writes and it sounds a lot like he's being extremely sarcastic, right? We think he is. There's no way to prove that necessarily in the Greek, but it is fascinating. He sounds very sarcastic. So let's go back to that previous verse real quick. Therefore, remember that you, that formerly, you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised, that's a derogatory term in their day, you uncircumcised, by those who call themselves, by the so-called, some translations say, circumcision. Paul is literally saying, even me, the people who dug at you guys, the people who picked on you, we don't even know what we're talking about, which is done in human hands. He goes on in verse 12. Not the next slide, but the next one. Yeah, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Context. What was the position of the Gentile? Not just being called names as the uncircumcised, but what were they? According to that verse, call it out. Separate from God. They were nothing, right? As a matter of fact, they were without God in the world. This is kind of code uh, language here that talked about them not being a part of any of the promises, the word of God, the law of God, the beautiful things that God had actually established. So check this out. Very important. Next slide. Paul probably is referring to the covenants that God made with Abraham, right? And the covenant God made with Isaac. And the covenant God made with Jacob and Moses and David. Each of these covenants involves promises of God. And what Paul said was you had no access to any of them. There was no life for you. There was nothing uh, of, of promissory nature. There was nothing for you. So go to the next slide. So verse 13, he says, but now in Christ. And we love this when the Bible says this. This is who you are but God. This is who you are but God. But now in Christ, you who are once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Every day on Sunday when we take communion and we remember God's sacrifice for us and we dip our bread, which represents his body, broken for us, into the juice that represents his blood, 
One thing that we should remember, one thing that we should hold dear is that because of that blood, we have been brought near. All of us, everybody across the board, whether Jew or Gentile, whether near God or far away, have been brought near because of that blood. So verse 14 goes on. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. There is so much in these verses, so much in this one section that we have to understand. First of all, God himself is our peace. This is back to the unity thing. It's not us agreeing with an idea together, right? It's not us coming together in full agreement that finally brings peace. You may feel peace when true unity happens, but why that is is because you're actually agreeing with God together. You're actually putting yourself under Christ. You're submitting yourself to him. And because of that, he himself is our peace. He's the one who allows us when we don't see eye to eye to walk hand in hand. He is the one who allows it. The problem, again, is that we find our peace in other things or we pursue peace in other ways. As long as you'll adhere to this statement of faith, you'll be perfectly fine. We can get along. But if you don't, go pack your bags and find some other place to worship. And division after division after division has confused the world. The world does not know anything about unity because the church is displaying it. They know unity better in their own worlds. And that's a shame. That's something that we really need to work on. So Jesus, again, is our peace. Who has made the two groups one? Who are the two groups we're talking about? Jew and Gentile. Very important. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Now, there's a lot here because that dividing wall of hostility also inclu includes the law and the covenants and all of these pieces. But there's a really important thing structurally that was a dividing wall of hostility. Do you remember what that was? So in the temple structure, where did the Gentiles fit in? Outside, right? The Gentiles had a court, so it was like, yeah, you belong, but out there, right? How many of you have ever felt that way in a, in a group that you associate with? You're like, yeah, that's cool, but I'm really out here. Nobody really wants me in there. How's that feel? It sucks, <laughs> right? You can tell my brother when he talks, right? Yeah, exactly, right? It sucks. It's no fun to be out there. Can you imagine how people felt when they were without God in the world? When they were excluded from the covenant promises? I mean, think about this. How would you feel if you were to come to church and you were asked to stay out in the atrium because, well, these promises don't belong to you? This is quote my brother again. That would suck, right? Okay, <laughs> right? So this is not fun, right? But this is the way, the way the Gentiles felt. This was the division that had happened. But Jesus himself is the one who tears this down. You know why Jesus is the one who tears it down? Because there's no longer a temple structure. There is Jesus. 
He is the temple, and we happen to be formed together to create that temple where he dwells. He moves this away from things built with human hands. The theme is getting thick, right? He gets this moved away from things built with human hands to things built by him. Amen? All of these image bearers, all of you as image bearers, get to come together and be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's the seal that comes when, after you've heard and after you've believed, right? You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And because of that, you become the dwelling place of God. And there is nobody who stands outside of that. They are all welcome to trust in Jesus. They are all welcome to come and experience the promise and the goodness and the grace of our God. That's a huge a huge deal, guys. So the two groups, he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And this is the sticky part. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. This is one of the harder pieces. Because elsewhere in the Bible it says something like, uh, Christ didn't come to abolish the law but to fulfill it. And here it says he actually came to Abolish it, to set it aside, to crush it. Why? Because it was not used for the right purpose, or it was never intended to be used for the purpose that the people started using it for. So we'll get to that in just a second. But he sets aside in his flesh the law and its commands and regulations. And you are reading that right. You don't have to stress and strain. You don't have to work through a theological mind. You can understand that that literally means all of God's commands and all of God's regulations. That also includes the Ten Commandments. Oh, this is hard. I'll explain. Don't worry. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. What were you predestined for? To be a part of what? A family. A family. How fun is it when families don't get along? <laughs> that was all I needed, just that laughter. It was great, right? It's not fun. You were created, the Jew and Gentile were created, every diverse people in this world, all created to come together and to be one. His purpose was to create in himself, never outside of Christ, in himself, one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace... Remember, our peace is in Christ, right? That's why, right? And in one body to reconcile both of them to God. Now, those would have been fighting words, I think, to many Jews, and here's why. We don't need to be reconciled. We don't need to be reconciled. We are God's chosen people. You remember the story of the prodigal son? You remember the young son who was clearly lost? By the way, there's our theme again. The young son in the prodigal son story was considered dead, right? You remember what was said? The father says this to his brother. He says, your brother was once dead and is now alive. But did you notice that that young dead kid was able to repent and run back to the father? Huh. He's not fully dead in the way people like to push this out there, right? So we have dead and alive. That's who we were, dead and alive. But that older brother... How good of a guy was that guy? He was a dirtbag, according to the story. 
He didn't want anything to do with his younger brother. He wanted to protest the party. He didn't want to celebrate life from death. He didn't like resurrection, apparently, right? He didn't like any of these things. He was very, very sour towards this idea. Guess what that young boy needs? Reconciled to his father. And that reconciliation comes for that older brother. It comes when he repents. It comes when he recognizes, I am here to celebrate all of my father's children, everyone that he brings near to him. This should be true of us. If somebody is willing to come near to Christ, you know what we ought to do? We ought to roll out the red carpet and celebrate. What do we often do? Well, we'll see. And we look at you with some sort of crazy hairy eyeball. That was a phrase my dad always used. I never really understood it. What's a hairy eyeball? Anybody got that? Okay, moving on, right? So, humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So we need to talk about this commands and regulations thing and putting to death hostility. Let's go to the next slide. In Romans chapter 10, 1 through 4, we actually see Paul talking about the Jewish people and how they had gotten so many things wrong. He says at one point that he would give up himself to see them redeemed and see them saved. So he says this, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. That older brother had a zeal for his father's house. He was just misguided, right? But not in accordance with knowledge. You ever met somebody with zeal and no knowledge? Pain in the neck. That's what they are, right? Zeal with no knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. How do we get to the righteousness of God, church? You're Christians. You should know this without ever hesitating. By faith. That's it. You don't need a theological degree to answer that question. Okay? By faith. God's righteousness, and they sought to establish it their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. When Christ comes to abolish the law, In what way do we actually understand his abolition here? What do we understand? It is for the purpose of righteousness. Here's why this is important. I do not advocate that Christians should be wanting uh, Ten Commandments uh, placards on every county wall everywhere. Why? You are not under the law. You are under Christ. But Christ does not advocate that you can now murder people, does he? No. No, but what, what prevents you from murdering people? <laughs> this is a fun question. I might get myself into some problems here. What prevents you, Mark, from murdering people? Oh, I thought you were going to say Emmy. Okay, good. Right, right. Here, here's the issue. The law is a, is a warning of what punishment you will get, but it is not the thing that prevents you from doing it. And if it is the thing that prevents you from doing it, you are living under an old system in which you rely on guardrails to keep you on the road. Do you? How many of you have used a guardrail lately? 
Please don't raise your hands. I mean, we can send you back to driving school, right? We, what do guardrails do? They are there to prevent us from sliding off the side of the road, maybe on a steep embankment. But, you know, fortunate for me, I, I've never had to use one. That's a very beneficial thing, right? I've never had to use one. Guardrails are there for preventative things. But what is there to keep you on the road? Skill. <laughs> right? Learning, growing, trying to do things. Okay, now I know that the analogy will break down there. But what I am telling you is that you don't need the law to keep you from murdering. You need God within you telling you what he values. Which is who? People. Every human being on this planet. He values everyone because you were made in the image and the likeness of God. That's an important truth. So as image bearers, which we'll find out later is what is the construction of the temple, we don't want to destroy God's temple. That would be horrendous. That would be a very wrong move against the God of heaven. So, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them, the Jew, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. They did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's go to the next one. Galatians chapter 3, 23, but before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law. It's important to remember what the law was actually for and what it's not for. Being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ. It's interesting. The guardrail is there to say, this is not the road you should be driving on, right? This is the ditch, genius, right? That's why it's there, but... You know what it means to drive on the road. So therefore, the law has become a tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. The same statement that is made in Romans, the same statement that is made in Ephesus, the law is done. Now, theologians like to split the law into categories. Well, there's the sacrificial law, and then there's the ceremonial law, and then there's the moral law, and of course God never wanted to abolish the moral law. You have to walk by faith or you'll commit every moral, fallacy or, uh, moral fault in the world. You will. If you do not trust in King Jesus, you will fall short. We all do, okay? The end is important because we do this really uh, heinous thing with lists, we make them our path to righteousness. That's what we do. If I'll just check the boxes, I'll be good. God's got to let me in. How many of you have heard somebody say, you know, when I get to heaven, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say, God, I've done a lot of good things. I, 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 I'm a good person. That doesn't, doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. There are many good persons who don't believe in Jesus. And we'll get to why that that doesn't work. You can check off all the boxes, but you're doing the same thing that the Jews did. You have zeal even for God, just without knowledge, and it's not helping. So, our tutor was to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith, but now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through 
faith in Christ Jesus. That's it. Who are the predestined? Those who hear, those who believe, and those who are sealed. What were we predestined for? To be children of God. And we do all that by faith. We do all that by faith, not by law keeping. That's not what happens. Let's go to the next passage. One new humanity. You notice this phrase back in the, in the Ephesians passage. This phrase is rooted in Paul's new creation theology. Something important for you. Just as God created humanity in his image in Genesis 1 and 2, this is what I shared at the intro of the Ephesians series, this cosmic battle, this new creation narrative that Paul is writing in Ephesus. He was now recreating humanity in Christ, right? We are image bearers with, with a clear understanding for ourselves of what that image is because we've seen Christ. Elsewhere in his letters, Paul calls believers new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, and describes both circumcision and uncircumcision as worthless in light of being a new creation. Why? Because that is not what made you a new creation. That can be a display of something just as baptism is, church. Baptism can be a display of your professed faith and should be a display of your professed faith. But it is that. It is get the order right is what I'm saying, right? You have heard, you have believed, you are sealed, go get dunked, right? That's like Nathan's version, right? Okay, so very important for everybody to understand these concepts. Let's go to the next slide. So in Ephesians 2, 17 and 18, he says, He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. So who is the far away? The Gentile. Who are the near? The Jews. For through him, Jesus, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Now how important is that sealing of that spirit? It's extremely important because you have access to the Father by that one spirit. Let's go to the next slide. Paul's use of the terminology near and far echoes words of the prophet Isaiah. So if you ever want to give some study to this, I would encourage you to do that. Isaiah 52, 7 speaks of preaching good news of peace, right? And Isaiah 57, 19, Yahweh speaks peace to those who are near and those who are far. Paul likely regarded Christ's preaching to those near Jews and far Gentiles as the fulfillment of Isaiah. Even that little line is Jesus fulfilling yet another prophecy of which he fulfills all of them, but it's really important for us to understand. So it's the hope of salvation to Isaiah, not just for Jews, but for all of humanity. So we have this idea that God wants to redeem who? Everyone, all people, right? And in order for that to work, we're gonna have to understand what unity means, right? We're gonna have to come together. And if we understand unity as just agreeing with ideas together about God, we're going to end up in the current state we are in, in the American church or in the church today, which is a lot of confusion, a lot of fighting, a lot of backstabbing and squabbling, right? But if we're the people who actually will submit and say, I know that God wants all to be redeemed, I have heard the gospel, I have professed faith in Jesus, and I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I am united with everybody here. I am. I don't even have to work at that in that way. Now, the work that God would call us to is love your neighbor, 
care for them in a good way, right? Don't make it harder. But what we're doing is we're agreeing with God together, but we're agreeing with God first, right? And we happen to do that together. So the next slide. There we go. In the Old Testament scriptures, God provides specific instruction for building a tabernacle in Exodus 26. He designated it as his dwelling and the place of worship and sacrifice. God gave the priesthood access to this particular tent to perform various duties. You guys all know this, right? right? It's pretty common understanding. But he restricted other Israelites from it because of Christ's sacrificial death and the indwelling presence of the Spirit. Believers, individually and corporately, have now become what? The temple of God. And guess what we never have to worry about? Access to God. This is an amazing truth for us. You remember the Damascus Road experience that Paul goes through, right? He is persecuting God's church and God strikes him blind, okay? And he is correcting Paul in this moment. But Paul is able at that moment to understand who he's persecuting and he comes to saving faith whether it was in that exact moment or whether it was later when his scales are removed, the eye, you know, his blindness is removed, whatever it is, Paul comes to saving faith. And at that moment, Paul is shocked because the entire world that he lived in, where you must go to the priest and the high priest and all of this rigmarole, it's all been done away with. He is able to talk to God, experience God, to commune with God by himself. He doesn't need anything, right? But he also knows that the very thing that he was persecuting, the church, was in fact the very new temple of God. It's people. It's something God builds, not man builds. And because he was persecuting it, he realized he was doing something against the God of the universe. So this humbles him, and he starts to, instead of killing those people, he starts protecting them. He starts caring for them, because why? He's one of them. And so in this story, Paul now comes through this entire transformation. He realizes circumcision, uncircumcision, those things are wonderful, but not for the wrong purposes. The law, wonderful, it's a good thing, but for the right reason. But what we are is a people of faith. Paul is recognizing he now agrees with God. And he is now one with all of those other people. He doesn't even know them. Have you ever wondered how Paul writes to all these churches everywhere? And he speaks, in many cases, he speaks so positively. He's like, you guys are loving the Lord. Read Thessalonians. It's, just a, it's a glowing endorsement of this church, right? It's such a beautiful thing. And I'm thinking, what was a normal week like? Because my weeks suck, right? I'm like, how do you give a glowing endorsement? Every week I'm like, oh, here we go again, right? No, Paul's doing this because Paul actually understands something very beautiful. Those people belong to God. And he also knows those people who belong to God make mistakes. You know how long that's taken me to learn and be okay with? 44 freaking years. (laughs) It's so stupid. But Paul sees them and understands, I agree with God together with these people. And I love this truth. So, next slide. In Ephesians 2, 19 and 20, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. How much hope is that line now that you know the context? You were what before? Without God in the world. You're no longer strangers 
But look at what you are. Fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his servants' quarters. No. Members of his household. You are his children. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. By the way, that's New Testament apostles. That's New Testament prophets, right? What is this happening? The whole entire structure of this is built on these people who have proclaimed this beautiful truth to the world with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. An amazing, amazing truth. So he goes on in 21 and says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Now, who are the people that Paul is writing to again? They're they're Christians, right? They're people who have heard, who have believed, and who have been sealed. And do you notice what he tells them? He says, you two are being built. Please don't miss that. You know what you are? You're a construction site. (laughs) You know why we get mad at each other? Because we're a construction site, right? We're like, don't you have it together yet? Shouldn't you be better than this? You know what your answer is? No, but he's working on it. We sing this song with our girls, he's still working on me, right? Have you ever heard that song? Let's see if you know it. He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth and Jupiter and Mars. Loving and patient he must be. Yeah, there we go. He's still working on me. My favorite part. There really ought to be a sign upon my heart. Don't judge me yet. There's an unfinished part. I'm I'm a construction site. Sarah's just going to keep going. She loves it, right? I am a construction site. You are a construction site. We are being built together. So now let's go back to that definition of unity. We're agreeing with God together, right? What does that give room for? Mistakes, maturity, growth, all of that stuff. We're growing together. Why? Because we're being built together. We're being built together. Show of hands, how many of you are perfect? Thank you. Thank you. Ben Bird finally raised his hand. No, I'm just messing with you. He's like, I didn't, and you point me out, right? So in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let's go to the next slide. This is so important. So unity is not agreeing together about God. Unity is agreeing with God together. That gives room for us to be a construction site. We're working, we're being built together, we're all maturing and growing, right? Now look at how serious this is though. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Do you know that? Good. Because you know that, look at what he says. If anyone destroys God's temple, read it with me, church. God will destroy that person. Oh, I thought our battle was against spiritual forces and not earthly issues. 
That's true. But those spiritual forces use people. And people are often at uh, the work of trying to destroy God's temple. Do you know how bold that line is for Paul to say it? He's literally saying, God has built you together as a temple, and anybody who lays a hand on you, God is going to take it out on them. And then he goes, and that was me. He's not a person like we have in the 21st century America who just simply says, that pastor is a jerk, that church doesn't know how to do this, they don't care about this. He killed people. Remember that guy who loved the law, <laughs> Paul? That guy who, with a lot of zeal and not a lot of knowledge, destroyed God's very work? We've got to be careful because whether you kill that institution or that situation or not, God is protective of his bride. So we must be careful with it. God will destroy that person for God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. Turn to the person next to you and say, we are that temple. We are that temple. Don't walk around with your chest puffed out and act like you're the whole temple of the Holy Spirit, please. Right? Nobody's got time for that nonsense. All that is is zeal without knowledge again. Right? We are the temple of God. We need each other. And if we need each other, we've got to get this unity piece down. And the best way to do that is the very mission that we have as a church. Learning what it means to become a family. We're going to agree with God together. And I'm going to be wrong and have been many times. And you're going to be wrong and have been many times. What does that matter? Are we still growing? Are we still pursuing God? Are we still wanting to agree with him? Then we're good. We're a construction site. Work in progress, right? Go on to the next passage in Corinthians in chapter 6. He says something similar. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God? This is a big deal. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Who is us in Ephesians? Those who hear, those who believe, and those who are sealed. That's who the us is, okay? What are we called for? To be holy and blameless. What were we predestined to? What was our destination before all things? Children of God. We're, we're all about a family. In that family, we also constitute the temple of the Spirit of God. It is so important that God says, anyone who destroys that, I will destroy that person. It's not enough that you just don't destroy the temple of God. It's that you have to be united because you are not your own. You were bought at a price. And in that, you give everything you are to the kingdom of God. You pursue him with all of your care, with all of your love, with all of your attempts at righteousness that hopefully 
are by faith. Church, we are a special group of people that come to this place. We come to this place of being the temple of God because God preached a message that was a message of salvation. We heard that message and we said, yes, we surrender. He gave us a promise, a seal of his Holy Spirit for this beautiful future, full adoption, this ceremony that comes with a wedding banquet and a feast and all manner of things, just like the story of the prodigal son. And as we're here, we just have to remember, we're a construction site working together as we agree with God together. Amen?